I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BC Henderson Institute. Welcome to the Thinkers and Ideas podcast. We're delighted to be joined today by Olivia Sibney, who is a Professor of Strategy at HEC in Paris, and also an Associate Fellow at the Side Business School in Oxford. He's just completed a book together with the legendary Daniel Kahneman and Cass Sunstein on noise, a flaw in human judgment, published by the Hachette Group. So welcome, Olivier. Hello, Martin. Very nice to be here. Fascinating book. Let's begin by getting our terms straight. You say that judgments can contain both noise and bias. But bias has got all of the glory in recent years. We spoke a lot about bias. Tell us about noise. The difference between bias and noise is really very simple. Bias is an average error. And that's how it's studied, that's how it's defined, and that's how we observe it. Noise is the unwanted variability of the judgments that we make. So we could have no bias, we could be on average correct, but still have a lot of variability in our judgments, and that would be a big source of error and injustice. So noise is the scatter of the points, if you like, and bias is how close they are to the bullseye. Would that be a good way of looking at it? That's a great way to look at it. I was trying to avoid a visual metaphor since this is a podcast, but if you think of a target, you ideally you would want all your shots to be clustered in the bullseye. If you are sending all your shots in such a way that they are hitting the target in a tight cluster, but not in the bullseye, that's a bias. But the much more likely type of error is that they are going to be scattered around the bullseye without being precisely in the bullseye. That's noise. It's unwanted dispersion, unwanted variability. So you argue that bias and noise affect the overall error in judgment by the same amount. And you give an equation and you, you say that equation is the intellectual foundation for the entire book. So you, you should probably explain that to us. Let me try we focus a lot on bias, and especially in business, we focus a lot on bias. And we have this idea, which we've heard many times, that random errors don't matter because they cancel out. That is actually not true. When mathematically you compute error, you typically use mean squared error, and because you square the errors, they don't cancel out, they add up. And in business, if you want to take another example that will bring it to life, one of the experiments that we discovered noise in was done in an insurance company where we looked at how underwriters set premiums for customers who apply for insurance. And obviously, if you set too high a premium, it's not good because you are at risk of losing the business to a competitor who is going to price at a more attractive level. If you set too low a premium, it's also not good because you are going to leave money on the table and maybe you're going to lose money by paying more claims than you got in premiums. So both errors are costly. You could be correct on average. You could say, well, on average, we're fine. We don't have a bias towards overpricing or underpricing. But still, on each and every policy, you're making a mistake. That's a very costly mistake. In the same way, and in a completely different field, if you say that a particular defendant who's been convicted of a crime deserves a punishment of seven years in prison, and let's leave aside the question of how we would know that is the just punishment. But if you assume that seven years would be a just punishment, and half the people get five years and the other half get nine years, those are two very serious judicial errors. These aren't signs that justice is being correctly served. So errors matter even when they are noise, not just when they are bias. So you make a strong case then that we should think more about noise. 
At the other end of the spectrum, I guess we have trusting our gut, going with instinct, which uh, happens a lot in business. In some ways, this may seem like a fairly irresponsible way of making decisions. But on the other hand, our instincts have been evolutionarily honed. They must be of uh, some use. What's wrong with trusting your gut? Is there a case sometimes for trusting the gut? There is a case for trusting your gut. What we would object to is trusting your gut too soon, trusting your gut too quickly. I think when people say they, they rely on their intuition, they sometimes confuse two things which we should distinguish. One is to trust your intuition because at the end of the day, you need to be confident in your judgment. And that's fine. Once your thought process and your judgment has been structured, has been fact-based, has been informed by all the good hygiene of your decision-making process that we will talk about, that's fine. What is not fine is to jump to a conclusion using your gut instinct early on in the process. So informed intuition at the end of the process is great. It's fine. It's useful. And anyway, we would not want to do without it. Early intuition is very dangerous because it's going to blind you to information that contradicts your initial hypothesis. It's going to make the world look a lot more consistent, a lot more coherent than it actually is. It's going to make reality look simpler than it is. And sometimes, not always, because as you say, instincts are evolutionary, sometimes it's going to result in costly mistakes. Some people, of course, are very good at making good judgments and predictions. I guess a prediction is a type of judgment. The so-called super forecasters, the top 2% of forecasters. In your book, you look at the techniques and habits of super forecasters. What do they do that uh, the average forecaster doesn't do? Before I answer this, let me just highlight why we're talking about forecasting. Forecasting, as you say, is a type of judgment. It's a type of judgment that has a great advantage. We can actually look back six months or a year or five years later, depending on what the forecast horizon was, and check who is right and who is wrong. That's a luxury that we don't have in most judgments. In most judgments, we never find out who is right and who is wrong. So we look at the forecasters as the canary in the mine, as the, the examples of people to whom we can turn to learn something about judgment in general from a domain in which we can actually check what judgments were right. And presumably that's the first best practice, is it, to actually look back and check and hone our instincts? It's a great practice when you can. But you see, one of the things that is striking when you, when, when you look at business judgment is that a lot of them are actually not verifiable. A lot of the judgments that we make you know, we're making the best judgments that we can. We think that we're making a judgment that is the best at the time we make it, and we hope for the best. But the outcome that we will see does not tell us whether the judgment was right. Take a very simple example. I hire someone. I've made a very considered, thoughtful decision, and I've hired someone. And that person does not turn out to be a great hire. Does that mean that I made a mistake in hiring that person? Maybe, but maybe it simply means that Success on the job is largely unpredictable and that the best recruiting process does not guarantee success. That's a judgment that is very hard to verify on a single case. So that's why looking at forecasting is so useful because it gives us a domain in which you can actually measure success. I guess one question that that prompts is, can we turn something that appears to be a non-repeated judgment or something which appears to be have an unclear outcome into a better behaved category of decision. So for instance, Bridgewater Associates talks about building machines instead of making decisions. And I, th I think what they mean is think systematically and ideally repeatably about the sorts of decisions that are going to be made. So if you like, they appear to have a transform from 
one-off to repeat it. Is that another technique that one can use? This is exactly what we recommend as well, which is that when you're thinking of a one-off decision, you tend to believe that it's unique and you need to apply a unique way of making that decision. And actually, we would argue that the same factors that cause noise in repeated decisions, like repeated forecasts, for instance, are also present when you make a one-off decision. It's just that you never get to actually see it. Since noise is variability, by definition, you're not going to observe it when you're only making the decision once. But the same things that cause that noise, the same factors that drive variability when you can actually observe it, are still present. So the same decision hygiene, the same preventive techniques that improve the quality of decisions will apply just as well to your big strategic decisions as they do to your repeated decisions like hiring. One of the most useful parts of your book uh, to me was what you call your mediating assessments protocol, which seems to be a sort of a recipe for improving what you call your decision hygiene. You have six steps in that. And I wonder whether you might walk us through those six steps, maybe using an actual decision, for instance, a hiring decision as an example. So your first step is structuring the sub-judgments. What what does that mean? So structuring would mean, and it's very obvious in the case of a hiring decision, at least it's obvious in principle, it's hard to do in reality, would mean identify the assessments that you're going to make, the dimensions that matter in the candidate that you're looking at. This is true for someone you're hiring, but it would also be true if you're acquiring a company. You would have to say, what are the the things that we care about? What are the due diligence questions that we want to ask about that company? There's always going to be a number of assessments that matter. Very often, we actually let the data discovery inform the list of assessments. We start looking and we say, oh, it's interesting that this candidate speaks German. That might come in handy. But actually, that's a sure sign that you're letting your liking of this candidate shape the criteria that you're using to decide between candidates as opposed to doing it the less noisy way, which would be to first define what matters and then make your decision. In consulting, I guess that's analogous to the decision to analyze what is important as opposed to the data that happens to be available. Would that be a good analogy? It's um, the, the analogy here would be what consultants do when they structure a problem and when they say what would need to be true for the conclusion to be true as opposed to just looking at the data, as you say, that is available, yeah. So your second step is ensure outside perspective. Tell us what you mean by that. On each of the assessments that you're going to make, you are going to use some sort of scale to make that assessment. So if you're evaluating the skill of a candidate on, say, interpersonal skills, you could say, Martin, that the candidate is outstanding, and I could say that the candidate is good. And maybe all that reflects is that you're using the word outstanding more liberally than me, and that I'm using the word good for someone I think is in the top X percent. So having a more explicit comparative scale based, if possible, in an outside perspective will help us. In this example, one thing we might do would be to say, well, let's think of a scale of people we both know. Who would be someone who is at the you know, 90th percentile of interpersonal skills? Who would be someone who is at the 70th percentile? Is this person better than the first one, better than the second one? That will reduce noise massively in our judgments of that person. We call this a case scale. It's a very practical tool. It takes a little bit of work to develop, but once you have it, it makes your judgments a lot less noisy. And then something which I think sounds like common sense, but presumably it's not so easy in practice, 
keep the sub-judgments independent? So you've decided your criteria, keep them independent. How does one do that? Again, let's take a very simplified hiring example. You and I have both met a candidate. And you're saying, no, we shouldn't hire the candidate. I'm saying, yes, we should hire the candidate. If we start digging, maybe we're going to realize that we both agree that the candidate is not so great on the cultural fit, but actually great on the technical skills. It's just that one matters more to me and the other matters more to you. And the weights, this is a very typical source of noise. The weights that we place on different attributes, the weights that different people put on different assessments is a big source of noise. If you discuss each of the assessments separately, so before we discuss, do we hire this candidate, let's discuss how highly do we think of this candidate on this assessment, on interpersonal skills, on technical skills, etc. If we do it this way, we are going to first eliminate the noise that there is in our assessments, and then we're going to have a separate discussion about what the weight of those criteria should be. Separating those discussions will also reduce the noise. So I had trouble distinguishing principle four from principle three. Principle four is review the subjudgment separately. What are you drawing attention to with your fourth principle? In a hiring decision, it would be uh, very close. In other uh, settings, it would be different in the sense that you want to keep the data gathering as independent as possible. Even in recruiting, in fact, you could say, let's have someone interview the candidate for a specific set of skills, and we're not interested in that interviewer's opinion about other sets of skills. Or you could have a test where you're going to test a candidate on a particular aspect of the question. Having as many sources of independent information that do not influence each other, that do not contaminate each other, improves the quality of your data. Then the discussion itself, that's a slightly different idea. The discussion itself, which is what we were talking about earlier, should take those topics in sequence and treat them separately. And then you say, ensure that the participants make their judgments individually. This is very important and widely underestimated in many organizations. What, For instance, in a hiring discussion, what a lot of companies would do is, you know, we've all met the candidate, let's get together and talk about it. And of course, we may have filled a form or we may have you know, formalized our judgments a little bit. But actually... A much better way to do this is to make absolutely certain that each of the judgments has been expressed in as much detail as possible individually by each of the people before you actually start discussing them. Because we know that as soon as you put people in a room, they are going to start to influence each other. You're going to have all sorts of hierarchical influences. You're going to have people who speak louder. You're going to have people who feel more confident about their decision. That creates a lot of variability in the outcome of the decision, depending on things as insignificant as who happens to be speaking first. So you want to reduce to the bare minimum the influence of social influence like this. So presumably this distinguishes groupthink from group wisdom. Is that a good way of thinking about it? This is exactly right. You want to eliminate anything that smacks of groupthink you also want to make sure that you have as many diverse people as you can involved in the discussion. But here you want to make sure that the diversity expresses itself. You want to make sure that you hear the different points of view clear, loud, and unadulterated before you actually start looking for consensus. You want to preserve that divergence phase before you converge. And I think the last one, which is in the final stage, use intuition. So you delay intuition, but don't ban it. I think we already spoke about that. So if I look at your list, 
And I'm asking, you know, what is the thinking behind the list? It seems to me that separation is, or segmentation of elements of a decision is basically the common principle running through all of these principles, because you're saying separate the sub-judgments, separate the discussion of the sub-judgments, separate the synthetic judgments. So it's like synthesize later would be the thing that covers the whole thing. Would that be a good way of understanding the spirit of your list? That's a very nice way to synthesize. One of the basic sources of noise is that different judgments tend to blend into each other. They tend to contaminate each other because we, we have a taste for coherence. We, we have excessive coherence in our judgments. We like things to make sense. We like things to be simple. So different dimensions of a candidate or different aspects of a problem will tend to blend into each other into a nice, coherent, well-fitting picture. Different opinions of different people will tend to influence each other. And you know, one way to think about it, sometimes people say, well, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. We need to talk. We need to exchange ideas. It's actually valuable. Well, if you were a police officer and you had four witnesses to a crime, would you let them talk to each other before you interview them? Of course you wouldn't. You would want you know, each of them to tell you what they've seen and what they've heard. And especially if they've actually watched the crime scene from four different angles, that would give you a lot better information than if they actually talk to each other, come to a consensus, and then tell you what they think. So think of your decision-making as gathering data from the crime scene or gathering data from your four witnesses. You want to keep them independent. So I think you've given us a lot of very good principles for dealing with noise and translating them to a very practical context. Not to negate what you're saying, but just to maybe explore the limits of what you're saying. It seems to me that there are situations where noise can be destructive, but there are situations where noise can be productive and can even be the point. And I'm thinking about things like very weak signals. So you have this idea of stochastic resonance in biology, whereby if you mix a very weak signal with a little noise, you get a clearer read. I'm thinking about the role of serendipity in innovation. If you dig into a, an innovation story, often it depends upon happenstance, depends upon being open to noise, if you will, of a, perhaps of a different type. And, and I'm thinking about just any evolutionary process whereby the variability is actually the lifeblood of the evolutionary process. If I said noise can be productive, how do I reconcile that with what you're saying? Uh, what would be your response? We define noise as unwanted variability. So you're absolutely right that a lot of variability is not unwanted. Variability in tastes is wonderful. Variability in opinions is welcome. Variability in creativity and in innovation, as you pointed out, is absolutely necessary. Variability in markets is indispensable. You know, without disagreements, there are no markets. What all these situations have in common is that after the variation, there is some selection. The sort of variability that is unproductive and the one that we call noise is the variation that is not followed by selection. When two underwriters in the same insurance company or when two judges in the same courthouse have completely different judgments about the same case, we don't get to find out which one was right and which one was wrong. This is just pure error. It doesn't have any value. So what we call noise is the bad variability that doesn't mean that all kinds of variability are unwanted. Of course, the world would be a terrible place without variability. So everything nowadays is about technology, including maybe even decision science. So there's uh, talk about reconceptualization of the organization as some sort of synergistic combination of human and machine cognition. And machine learning is major, making major inroads. And I guess that invites us to think about where we should embrace 
these techniques to improve our decision-making and where we should be cautious. So as we incorporate machine learning into our decision-making processes, what does your book tell us about areas for acceleration and caution? We've got a fairly detailed discussion of uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning as as it replaces judgments. And here's basically what we're saying. We have known for a long time that models, rules, algorithms are actually quite good and generally better than human beings at all kinds of judgments. This was the case long before we had artificial intelligence. This was already the case in the 1950s. And the reason is very simple. The reason is rules, models, algorithms of any kind, even the most rudimentary back-of-the-envelope formulas, are noise-free. Humans are very smart. They're wonderful, but they add a lot of noise when they try to be smart. Models, even when when they're dumb, are noiseless. And noiselessness is such a big advantage that even a very basic model, let alone AI, is often much better than a human judgment. What's interesting, though, is that we've known this for decades, and we don't want to hear it. People resist the idea that machines make better judgments than humans for some good reasons. There are algorithms out there that are biased, that are bad. But of course, the response to that should not be, let's reject all algorithms. The response should be, let's design them so that they are not biased. Let's design better algorithms. And we've got plenty of evidence that that is possible. Still, people reject, resist, object to algorithms with all kinds of somewhat more emotional reasons and sometimes some other good reasons. So our take on this is, let's try to learn what we can from what makes algorithms effective. For instance, let's try to be less noisy in our human judgments. Let's not hope that algorithms are going to replace all human judgments because they won't, and we wouldn't want them to. I um, maybe process what you said about machine learning in your book slightly differently. I I thought that the uh, about the judgment to use an algorithm. So in my mind, I maybe an affliction of my profession. I thought about it, you know, two by two, where I was thinking about the noise in the decision, which one could obviously improve with algorithms. But I also thought about the governance decision around the correctness, the application of the algorithm. And I was thinking about need to optimize on both dimensions, neither blind trust nor blind mistrust in technology. You know, in a sense, taking something which appears to be one thing and partitioning it into two things. Would that be valid? It is obviously valid in the sense that you don't want a a fantasy world in which machines make all the decisions without governance. Now, You hear a lot of people saying, oh, we need to keep control of the machines. We need to make the final decisions. Algorithms should only ever be advisory, and in the end, it should be a human making the call. This is a very unpopular thing to say, but actually, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) If If you believe that the algorithm is more accurate, when you disagree with the algorithm, you should defer to the algorithm, unless you have a very good reason to believe that the algorithm doesn't know something that you do know, that this is called a broken leg case sometimes, unless there is a very specific reason, it's precisely when the algorithm disagrees with you that it's telling you something valuable. What we see a lot when people use algorithms in business these days, for instance, in HR applications, is that they say, well, you know, I really like this new application that I got with this algorithm that sorts resumes for me because you know very often it agrees with me which just tells me how brilliant i am and sometimes it disagrees with me 
and I can just ignore it. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You make, a, you make a good point. So I wanted to ask you about the essence of rational decision-making, in a sense, because there's this joke that, to an economist, uh, economic rationality means things which fit with their simplified artificial models of reality, and we call everything else irrational. And, um, but it's an interesting joke because, of course, we have a different type of rationality, which is ecological rationality, which is, for a complex set of evolutionary reasons, this is, you know, this is how we react to certain types of stimulus. Now, it doesn't mean that those reactions are correct, but it means they have a certain type of rationality. So I'm wondering, what is the role for ecological rationality or holistic judgment or rapid judgment in a decision-making process? And I ask this because, in a sense, the world is very fast-moving and we have less and less set-piece decisions because we simply don't have time anymore, right? We don't have a three-hour contemplation or ways of, of something that change because things are changing all the time. It's more like a stream of micro-decisions. Any role for ecological rationality in your models? Yes. When we talk about the noiselessness of models, one of the great examples of that is what are called frugal models or uh, simple rules. There is um, a wonderful study that we cite in the book at some length where you look at decisions that bail judges make to either you know, send someone to prison while awaiting trial or to leave them free on bail. And there are models that try to help judges make that decision, very complicated models using 137 parameters. There are, of course, human judges making that decision using their gut feeling. And there are models that simply use two parameters you know, uh, the, in, in this case, the age of the defendant and the number of the previous failures to appear that the, the defendant has had, it turns out that that simple rule, that simple back-of-the-envelope calculation, which doesn't require a computer or even a calculator, predicts just as well as the complicated model and better than most of the human judges. This is a great example of how you can develop simple heuristics that actually, from an evolutionary standpoint, from an ecological standpoint, perform better than very complicated models. This is not a very deep form of rationality. This is a simplified model that takes into account the fact that the world is really messy and really noisy, and that we don't need a more sophisticated decision technique than the data that we have. What it does not do, however, is tell you, go ahead and follow your gut. That is not ecologically rational. <laughs> that is, you know, that is emotionally rational, emotionally satisfying, if you want. What is ecologically rational is to try to have a simple rule that is derived from the ecological environment in which you live, but that is applied without noise. There is a phrase that I quite like from one of the studies that we looked at, which is mindless consistency. Being mind mindlessly consistent actually beats being inconsistently mindful at many tasks. And that's something that we should remember when we're speaking of ecological effectiveness. So unfortunately, we're out of time. It's a fascinating topic. And people, I guess, will have to read the book if they want to learn more. But let me end with the uh, what to do differently on Monday morning question. So I'm an individual leader. Uh, I've read your book. And I have this vast task now, this, this vague intention to improve decision making in my organization. From a leadership perspective, what are some of the first moves or the, the leadership trajectory to improve decision-making in an organization? Well, Martin, at the risk of sounding like a consultant, which, as you know, I was for a long time, the first step is to get the data, to get the facts on how much noise there is in your organization. Take some important judgments that your organization depends on and do a noise audit. 
do a very simple exercise where you take a judgment that is normally made by one person and you actually give that judgment to all the people who are supposed to be interchangeable in making that judgment and measure how much variability there is. If our experience is any guide, you will be surprised and then you can decide what to do about that. I think that's a great first step. And presumably we could all do that in relation to recruiting. Everybody recruits, everybody has multiple people recruiting, everybody has some sort of recruiting data. That may be a good place to start, I guess. That's a great place to start. Another place is performance evaluations, which are also minefield of noise. And generally speaking, any type of operational decision that is made by a number of different people would be a place where we would suspect there is noise. Uh, I've been speaking to Olivia Sibney about his new book, Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment, co-authored with uh, Daniel Kahneman and Cass Sunstein from Hachette Books, a book and a topic that any business leader should be thinking about. Thanks uh, so much for joining us today, Olivier. It's been uh, fascinating and congratulations again on the book. Thank you very much, Martin. <laughs>